0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, January 11th, 2021. I'm John Podhords, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So, you know, uh, our theme song... Uh, look for the best, expect the worst, comes from Mel Brooks's, maybe his least known movie, uh, The Twelve Chairs, his second movie made in 1970 after The Producers. And, uh, you know, when we decided to use it as our as our intro, um, it was a joke, you know, it was sort of the It was the fundamental Jewish joke of all time, this song. You know, you look for the best, expect the worst. You could be Tolstoy or Fanny Hurst. Fanny Hurst being a a now forgotten popular novelist of the 1920s and 1930s. Um, Trash novelist. So it was a joke. Uh, And today, this week, it doesn't seem like such a joke to me anymore, but rather... Uh, a prophetic prediction of the uh, position we would find ourselves in today uh, with um, not only with the events of, of last week, the, the the attempted the storming of the Capitol uh, uh, with at least some non-zero number of people in the crowd um, intending to do violence to the Vice President of the United States, the Speaker of the House, whoever they could get their hands on, if they could have gotten their hands on them. Uh, not only that event, but also the uh, continuing response of the uh, professional, let's say the professional conservative movement and, um, and in, in some measures of polling, the, um, the sort of the, the rank and file of the Republican Party uh seeming to remain lined up in some fashion either not in deep opposition to or actually supportive of some of the things that have happened here uh this is astonishingly dispiriting and uh uh to those of to many of us who have uh made our lives promulgating and uh advancing and seeking to set into proper context the uh the the thoughts of uh, let, let's say non-liberalism or anti-liberalism in the american context uh, or the modern american context maybe in part uh, out of an interest in classical liberalism which is not entirely the modern context but um you know it, there there are ways in which it it feels as though this uh, intellectual project of the last half century or more um is now in uh, existential uh, peril or in danger of uh being discredited entirely because of its association with and at least in some quarters uh uh support for uh uh, insurrectionist revolutionary efforts uh, led by the president of the United States. Uh, so, I want you, uh, li- our listeners, to sit back, relax, get a cup of coffee. We're going to go on for a while today, uh, longer than our usual podcast, because there are a lot of things that I think we need to tease out about what's gone on and and why we are so concerned, and I think also why. Uh, the responses to this not only on the right, but among uh, corporations and uh, media outlets and the social media world uh, bid fair to make things uh, as bad as, as as they could possibly be. So why don't we start with the roll up, uh, which seems to be pretty efficient of the, uh, rioters and, uh, the people photographed most, um, you know, most evidently the guy who was carrying Nancy Pelosi's podium, the guy who was like climbing around on the ramparts of the Capitol building, the, you know, various other people, uh, are they being arrested to make an example, or are they being arrested? You know, is this is this all righteous, or are we seeing? I think we're going to start seeing arguments being made that somehow uh, they're just as, just as people on the left were saying that they were somehow handled with kid gloves during the riot. There is going to be an argument that is going to start getting proffered that they are being uh, uniquely uh pursued in Javert fashion uh uh simply for you know uh for, for hijinks. Uh does anyone see that coming or ha- has anyone seen signs of that?
1: Well they I mean the, the more entrenched pro Trump wing of the republican party has already made a martyr of the woman the protester who was who was shot and killed they've had little you know candlelight vigils for her and whatnot um but anyone who tries to excuse their behavior and once i mean these people all belong in prison um that's where they should go uh after a a speedy trial (laughs) but anyone who tries to justify this in two ways one i can i can see the the uh impulse to justify it by saying, well, during all the upheaval and riots and looting and whatnot over the summer, the Black Lives Matter stuff, people, they didn't actually prosecute a lot of the, the more violent elements or the Antifa elements. And that's all true. This is, this is qualitatively a different situation. This was an effort to disrupt the functioning of government um, and whether or not the people whose faces were obviously picked up by every single security camera on the Capitol, whether or not they... Understood what they were doing, they did it, and they were told to stand down by law enforcement, who they ignored and who they battered and murdered, and they should go to prison for that. So, anyone who on the right who wants to make an excuse for these people or claim that we shouldn't be prosecuting them with the utmost zeal uh, has a lot of explaining to do in their uh, uh, from the on that position. I think I think they should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law.
2: Um, I'm very sorry to say that I think there we will start to see those kinds of excuses um, come out. Over the next, I don't know, week or so um, on the right, because I'm struck by how quickly um, people on the right went from in the immediate wake of the attack on the Capitol went from. Well, this is this goes to show um, just how disgusting it was that the left didn't um, disown and criticize its rioters. It went from that to making some similar type of excuse on the right. Um, for the riders and protesters, as disenfranchised people whose voices were not being heard, that struck me um, very deeply, and I was very surprised to see it. And and I wouldn't be surprised to, to see that trend continue um, to Noah some some form yeah. of of continued support.
0: So Noah, uh, obviously, as everybody knows, sometime uh, Thursday or Friday. Uh, uh, Twitter announced the permanent ban of Donald Trump's feed, uh, in, in, including associated efforts to move his feed to other to other Twitter feeds so he could do it without his real Donald Trump uh, signature. Then followed by the deplatforming of Parler, the counter Twitter. Um, uh, both reasons given for these. Deplatformings that um, that there was literal incitement to murder. Uh, there was a th- danger of literal incitement to murder in these feeds on Parler, and uh, and and basically that uh, Amazon Web Services or whatever it's called that where 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 uh, Parler's guts were being stored on a WordPress a WordPress platform and stuff like that did not were 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 shutting it down for the safety of of others. We should talk about that a little bit, but I, I think one totally unintended consequence of the decision that was being made here uh, by people who may not have understood the psychology of what is going on on the right um, is the creation now of a counter-narrative, which is that the totalitarians are coming for... Free expression and the f- and and the free exercise of opinion in the social media world, which is now the public square, even though it's owned by private companies, it's effectively the public square, and you are now uh, criminalizing and attempting to silence discussion in the public square. Given that this is the argument that is being made, that has I think real purchase on the right, was it a mistake for Twitter? and uh, all these companies to do this sort of um, proactive shutdown, do you think? Maybe. Pa- probably.
3: Um, but we haven't seen how that will manifest yet. <clears throat> Even before this move or other moves, when Republicans had you know real political power, it was uh, of utility for certain conservative broadcasters Republican politicians to advance the notion that Republicans were uh, conservatives generally were uh, actively persecuted in um, cultural venues media venues uh, corporate the corporate world and in uh, certainly the political world um, that sentiment that all-consuming victimization complex well not entirely unfounded um, was a something that I think was was valuable for people who wanted to mobilize a political coalition and it was a cynical, cynical move. Um, But it's hard to argue against that now if you're of that particular mind and not just because of what Twitter did, but because of what we've been seeing now with corporations, um, banks and others uh, denying the opportunity now to uh, donate to Republicans and Republicans exclusively, as opposed to both parties, some are doing, some are just scaling back their contributions to all PACs and all political contributions generally, which is probably the right move. Um, but others are singling out Republicans uh, alone.
0: Well, but specific and kinds some of, of
3: Republicans, specific kinds of
0: Republicans, not Republicans full bore. The case that is being made is that they will no longer provide donations or funding to people who question the results of the twenty twenty election. So, if you are were not among the one hundred and thirty or however many people who 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 objected to the Pennsylvania or Arizona uh, electors, um, you you are not subject to. I, I can't remember who it is, Citibank and uh, a couple of other corporations, right? It's not that the Republican Party where Republicans full bore are being, are being told that they will no longer be donated to.
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd have to go through
0: the number of, uh, I, th- I think some of them aren't, aren't making the distinction
3: you are, but most are, um, but you know, what we, we saw in last week, for example, quote to quote Tucker Carlson, tens of millions of Americans have no chance now. Quote, they are about to be crushed by the ascendant left. And that is an existential threat. And when you have personalized politics to the the degree that it's no longer about politics, it's not about legislation. It's about you as a human being and your right to exist. And we see this on both sides um, who uh, create this construct, this paranoid construct out of politics. it becomes you know it, it advances the conspiracy theory and there, of course there's an element of truth to to just about every conspiracy theory but the notion that these institutions are actively arrayed against your interests then it becomes a fight to the death and that's not true for everybody obviously but for those for whom it is true there's literally no escaping this yeah. politics is everywhere it's in the food you eat it's in the brands you patronize it's in the commercials you watch and the scripted television programs that they interrupt there's no escaping from this from this construct you've built for yourself and what happens is it becomes a self-perpetuating condition in which people who can or have s- mind sound enough to to leave this experiment to just dissociate they do so but those who can't or won't stick around and it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle that is on the precipice of chain reaction
1: well and i think it, it there are a couple things about the silicon valley uh behavior in the last week that are important to point out. One is that Silicon Valley is an industry that has almost entirely been captured by the Democratic Party in in the sense that most of the people who work for it, certainly the leaders of the big tech companies, the billionaires like Zuckerberg, they are much more sympathetic to the Democratic Party's message than the Republican Party's message. That's fine, right? You can say, oh, that's fine, because every time conservatives complained, what they were told was that, well, if you don't like Twitter, if you don't like Facebook, just go make your own thing. And they did. They went to parlor. There have been some other attempts to kind of build social media platforms that are more uh, hospitable to conservative ideas. Um, and now that's also been taken away. So I do think this is sort of a different this is a different moment, because if Amazon Web Services is going to refuse to host any sort of uh, platform that is largely conservative, and Twitter is going to allow, you know, the Colin Kaepernicks and the um, Iranian uh, mullahs to, to say hateful and violent things on their platform. And those are fine because they're in service to whatever ideological priors the people who run those companies have. You have a you have a serious problem in what is already for many of us have been saying is, is, a, is a, a completely corrupted public square in the digital space. Right. And it's really strange to see all these lefties who generally don't like privatized public uh, squares defending them because right now they're all on the same page ideologically. But this is just a structural danger they're creating for the future in terms of how debate will happen. And it will drive underground the more extreme elements who are, I think, not incorrect to feel persecuted right now, even if it's a justifiable persecution.
0: Okay, but common sense says the following. Uh, I saw... A parlor posting by Roger Stone, right, who was convicted and sentenced to prison for making physical threats against someone, then pardoned by the President of the United States, saying, We're making a list. Of traitors, we're gonna know where they are, and then specifically threatening people at the Lincoln Project. On parlor in the open. Now, we just saw a mob of people, and it could have been, you know, you can count maybe it's only a hundred or a hundred and fifty or even fewer than that who went into the Capitol with murderous criminal intent. But that's why I said it's a not, not it's a non-zero number, because it's not, wasn't everybody who was at that rally, and everybody at that rally didn't go down the mall to the Capitol, and everybody who went down the mall to the Capitol didn't enter the Capitol building. But there was a small population of people who were there with murder in their heart and carrying equipment for the purposes of doing injury and did injury, murdered a police officer, uh, and then a couple of other, you know, bad, somebody got trampled, you know, but the, we have at least one case in which somebody was literally murdered, not with the equipment that was brought in by by a fire extinguisher that was at hand. Roger Stone says, we're taking names and making lists and we're going to come after you, is not nothing. Like, that is, it's not just incitement, It is. it is all, it It only takes one person on parlor with a gun to look at that database that says, you know, uh, X person is going to be, you know, lives at X address in New Mexico. and And then someone goes there and tries to kill them. And had that happened... And people who had the ability to shut parlor down before those messages were delivered, right, had that been known, the question would be, why was this allowed to happen? But it happens on
1: Twitter every day. That happens on Twitter constantly. I mean, elected officials are targeted. The organized mob all summer, it happened in DC constantly. They would swarm cars, dox people by getting a picture of their, if you tried to drive around their protest, they'd literally take a picture of your car and you put it online and say, find this person, hunt them down. It happens all the time. It happens every day on the same, on these platforms. So I, and I think it's terrible there too. But the point is that if you, if you, if the argument has always been, we want to, we want to keep the extremists off and here are our standards, then you have to apply those standards equally. That has not been done. There's plenty of evidence. Okay. If it's, you don't want to give them a platform at all, then the question is, where do they go? Because they will find a way. Okay. And how do you mean, monitor them?
0: Look, you know, I agree that the, that the, that the, uh, polarization of the violent elements, uh, in the summer's protests and in Portland and in Seattle and all of that was shameful but and this is where it starts getting complicated because we we did nothing for six months but yell and scream and rant about this and talk about this and talk about the the whitewashing of this you know of this uh of this movement uh we uh, we started a special sort of hashtag in the magazine called stop the unraveling Abe wrote a piece called yes this is a revolution like nobody was more further out in front on this stuff than than we were it is a different thing when the movement in question is being led by the president of the united states that's true that's absolutely yeah. true. so yeah. it's just a different quality it's a qualitatively different thing but
1: the structural uh, problem is the same with social media
0: well, the structural problem with social media is the same. The the specific imminent problem is different, It right? Uh, when Roger Stone speaks on Parler, it can be presumed that he is ventriloquizing the president because he was the president's political aide for 15 years. He was the guy who got... Trump into the position that he is that he was in when he started coming down the escalator and Trump did pardon him whenever it was Trump pardoned him. And so who knows what he's doing? I'm saying in a, as a commonsensical matter, the idea that terrible things could happen between now and January 20th and maybe after. But let's just say between now and January 20th, is not negligible. Uh, You know, I mean, uh, and, and so I am more sympathetic than I ever thought that I would be to the idea that a current emergency allows for, you know, sort of blunt force measures to be taken
1: but then you would suspend. You wouldn't permanently ban. Right. You'd say we're suspending President Trump's accounts. We're suspending any accounts on par- anything on parlor that that is that is, you know, inciting violence. You can suspend for this emergency period. I think the concern right. a lot of people have is that there's no suspension. It's just you're gone. We will. This is and you can already see the rolling effects of this. I think that there's now a liberate some organizations and entities now feel liberated to keep Keep people out permanently. I mean, Airbnb is in, in mine in DC is now people are encouraging Airbnb to not allow anyone to rent a, a, a place in DC on the off chance that those people are radicals coming to disrupt the inauguration. I think there's a real threat and they should take it seriously. But this idea of now you're free to do business in a way that uh, punishes people who may or may not be uh, politically on your side and who may or may not be violent or insurrectionary. The assumption is a very sweeping move that Twitter in particular took with Trump. They could have suspended his account until he left office, but they banned him permanently. That, and they didn't give a, the explanation was for the emergency. And I understand that and I support that. But the, the lifetime ban is I think what really got a lot of people going, wait a minute. Um, but they, and they didn't, they have not convinced me the lifetime ban is necessary for him, honestly.
0: Okay, but there are two – okay, so Abe, let me just – there are two different – interestingly enough, though, they they seem entirely connected. There are two different issues. There is the issue of of Trump's banning, and then there is the issue of whether or not general uh, extremist speech on the right is being systematically gone at. And they're not the same thing uh, because Trump, of course, has access – To a gigantic megaphone he doesn't presidents didn't need twitter before this he could literally right now put up a website for in five minutes and start putting sentences on it that tens of millions of people would read the minute that they knew it was there he doesn't need twitter but you know uh, Joe Schmo, uh, who wa- you know, who has a Gadsden, who has a Gadsden flag, and you know, uh, is has has extremist opinions, but is doing nothing wrong except holding extremist opinions. He now is at risk of having his ability to speak freely quashed.
2: And uh, the thing is, you need both of those, you, meaning you need. Um... Trump uh, inciting at the top and Joe Schmo receiving the message. You need both elements to create the kind of horror that we saw last week. <clears throat> uh, um, right. <clears throat> excuse me. What, what, I mean, the, the thing about emergency measures that we fear generally is that they extend beyond the emergency. Um, and that is, ve- I think, a very clear danger um, at this point, because it's hard to see uh, a, a slackening up of this at some point. You know, it's hard to see uh, at some point a, a popular sense of bringing right wingers sort of back into the fold um, publicly. I think it's I think if there's a there's a shunning that's heading only in one direction for the foreseeable future. Um, I, I just want to say, though, on this on this point of um, the difference between uh, Trump, the, the the where where the right has the president of the United States um, inciting, and um, the riders on the left didn't have uh, something comparable. the The force behind the 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 left wing violence. Um, It it was asymmetric to what's happening on the right in that in that there's no single leader on the top who embraced and incited um, like that. But what what the left had that the right does not have, which is, I think, maybe equally powerful, but uh, certainly powerful, is this total institutional embrace of the cause Um, in pop culture, in academia, uh in media uh, so so there 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 is was still a very very strong and uh, very dangerous embrace by by a sort of whole class of respected figures on the left that we
0: that we don't have on the right okay but again let me just uh, uh, play devil's advocate or do some pushback part of the little, you know, uh, monologue I delivered at the beginning of the show speaks against that, which is maybe it's the, you know, majority of the Republican Party. The Republican Party is one of the two political parties in the United States. So it doesn't control academia and the media and popular culture, but it it ain't nothing. I mean, it is, you know, Trump got 75 million votes. And uh, one of the things that I have found Deeply offensive in the way that Trump has talked about the results of the election is this notion that when he says the election was stolen and and uh, and that you know what happened was unfair, um, the presumption, the thing that White House people say is that 75 million people agree with him, right? Well that's not right. Like they, 75 million people voted for him. You know, 60 million people voted for Romney. If Romney had said the election was stolen and it was unfair, there wouldn't have been this cult of personality there behind him to say, no, never concede. Don't you ever concede, right? So it's a, there is something. So he has this party and he has this claim that uh, it was 75 million people who were, uh, disenfranchised by this, by the, by the theft, the supposed theft um, uh, in the election. And that argument is entirely different from the more inchoate argument being made by the black lives matter be, you know, everything that went on in the summer. Part of what was frustrating about that was that nobody knew what it was for, you know, that there were, there were many arguments, you know, that was it, was it, complaining about the horrible sight of George Floyd you know uh being you know being slowly killed by by the by the police officer in Minneapolis was it about policing in general was it about the lives of black people in america was it about the american project dating back to 1619 it was about none of these things and all of these was it about lockdowns and the fact that people were able to uh get moral suasion and moral support for going out in the streets when they had been forced to stay inside for months they're part of the reason that it was so successful was that it didn't have a theme this all has one very specific theme the election was stolen from us and we're not wussies and wimps like romney people and all of that we're going to take it back and once the boulder starts rolling down the hill what is the logic of we're going to take it back? It is storming the Capitol when the electors are being, you know, when the electoral college votes are being accepted. Like that, that's why this is different. And, you know, the notion that I would say that there was something worse than the Black Lives Matter protests, if you had told me in, in, in July that this would be a theme that I was going to evoke, I would have said that you were crazy,
3: uh, because it, no, they they bo- are, I think that's wrong. They both have the same theme. The theme is that these institutions want you dead or they want you expurgated from society. And that's precisely the same themes you heard from Black Lives Matter protesters, not the rioters who were taking on, you know, just sacking Gucci stores, but the people who found them useful. Um, institutions like Vox.com, which said, you know, this is how real change happens, the Atlantic, which is, you know, the violence is bad, but also it's a force for, you know, societal evolution. Um, the intellectual infrastructure that uh, Abe was talking about, if this, is, if this project, getting Trump off Twitter or what have you, is designed to stigmatize violence and stop insurrections, uh, or rather uh, incitement to insurrection, um, then it will not be successful if the effort is directed purely at the violent on the right because the violent on the right justify their actions by talking about the violent on the left. And the violent on the left justify their actions by talking about the Nazis in the streets that want them dead. These two things cannot be isolated and removed without both of them being targeted, stigmatized, and rendered taboo. And as long as we don't resolve to do that, it's going to get worse. By the
0: way, you know, one thing I I would have to say about this is that uh, as we can see from what happened last week and the fact that it's going to be pretty easy for law enforcement to locate and arrest almost everybody who was involved in that protest shutting down social social media is a gift to uh investigators who are interested in figuring out who's doing what like it's 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 a gift because people are stupid and they walk around without they say things on their on their Twitter feeds and on Facebook and on Parler and on Gab and wherever, right? In a uh, perfect they, world,
1: Parler should be half FBI agents. Like that's the uh, world plot. <laughs> is.
0: You know the story it of is, yeah. the story of but, Occupy but, but, Wall Street. Uh, as somebody said to me just after they finally rolled up Occupy Wall Street and shut it down, was by the end half of the people who were sleeping in Zuccotti Park mm-hmm. were were uh, New York City cops undercover yeah but it's, not, it's actually
3: it's not a gift um because it's it's a gift insofar as you can go backwards and prosecute these people right but it's not a gift because it radicalizes so many more and creates such a larger problem that is that cannot be
0: proactively policed. fair enough but that the other question is is this america i mean that's the That's the horror that we need to confront.
1: There's a great uh, to your to that question and to Noah's uh, point just now, uh, Ben Smith's column in The New York Times today has an interesting answer to that, which is kind of terrifyingly. Yes, but it goes to it's not because of the politics of any of this. It's because of the virality that that is at anyone's fingertips and the absolutely intoxicating sense of being. Uh, you know, having a purpose that millions and millions of strangers endorse and love. And he tells the story of this guy who used to make viral videos for them at BuzzFeed ending up in the Capitol, storming the Capitol, live streaming the whole thing. And and this guy isn't really political, right? He bounced around for all kinds of extreme, but he's- He, he, had, was, a,
0: he was a Bernie Sanders guy. Right, and, and then, then he, he was a MAGA guy. guy. Yeah. Yeah. But,
1: but to that to me is the most terrifying answer to your question is people like that. And he's one guy, but there are millions of people who you can easily see going down that path, which is why I think the structural social media problem, if we really want to tackle it in terms of the public square and democracy- we need allies on both sides talking about it. And what we're seeing, at least in the immediate aftermath of this terrible insurrection, is one side be- coming down like a hammer, which will further radicalize a lot of the people who might otherwise be open to discussing this. Im- the impact of this, long term.
0: I don't know that they're going to be further open or not. I mean, one of the reasons that I think this was um, this might have been, you know, ill considered in the way that it was done. Uh, for Facebook and Twitter and and Amazon Web Services and all of that, this is the culmination of four years of pressure where they were told you need to shut Trump down because terrible things are going to happen. And, you know, he's threatening democracy, he's a fascist, he's doing this, he's doing that. And then an event happens that seems to justify a lot of those uh, very aggressive messages that were sent to Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey by the liberal intelligentsia, and so they 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 no longer have. This is how I would interpret it. They, lo- they, they lost their capacity to say no, 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 we can't do that because it's like the prophecies were fulfilled, and in their mo- their eyes, they're at least closing the barn door before more h- horses, you know, run out of the stable. Um, that's that's their perspective. So my perspective is that whatever reckoning, self-examination there was going to be on the right as a result of what happened has been stymied, slowed down, and quashed by the victimization narrative of the silencing of the right and the idea, which is essentially what the you know American Civil Liberties Union said. When the effort was made to shut down the Nazi march in Skokie in 1979, is you think this is about Nazis? You 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 know, and nobody cares about Nazis, and nobody wants Nazis to march. We're opposing this because in the famous you know Pastor Niemoller thing, you know, they come at the Nazis and you don't do anything, and then they come after you, and there's nobody left to say they're not allowed to come after you so i think that what they did is defensible but there are costs to these choices and the question is is the immediate prophylactic effort to prevent further damage to prevent death to prevent you know insurrectionary action over the next 10 days or or beyond is that worth the twi- the, the victimization narrative that is going to overtake uh, the right now liberals think they don't care like they don't give a shit right they, they 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 think that everybody on the right should now be silenced permanently uh because of what's happened here and that's also i think a you know uh seizing on a moment to win uh, an ideological battle right so it's like they can't be allowed to. They're killing people. They can't be allowed to speak. Oh, and the good thing is that then maybe we'll get Puerto Rico and and DC as as, as states. There'll be no one left to speak against that or something like that. Um. So there, this is very um. You know, in terms of the battle of the uh, right versus the left, the left is 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 seizing on this, and I, I mean, Christine, you pointed out that Nicole Hannah Jones, the uh, the Dwayne of the. 1619 project, put out a tweet saying, uh, you know, the media needs its own reckoning too.
1: Right. We were we were all trying to, uh, fortune cookie, like divine what she meant, but I think she means exactly what she said. She wants to see anyone who, who in her judgment or the judgment of her, uh, obviously progressive and liberal peers, gave anything like aid and comfort to what is now in her mind, clearly the enemy, which is you know basically the vast majority of people on the right, they should be purged. And you know we we had these discussions over the summer with regard to cancel culture and whatnot. This is the again it gives it gives um, it gives them a, a very good cudgel actually, with some justification given given how uh, things played out. But it, it suggests that this is a much broader new front in a culture war that we've been sort of seeing from different. Angles for, for years now, but is all coalescing, which is, again, not to say that everything that happened on Wednesday wasn't horrific and awful and uniquely bad. It was all of those things. But the long term consequences of uh, all of the choices we make in the next few months are going to be crucial. And the way and the lack of leadership by some in cultural institutions and certainly um, in politics is going to have repercussions uh, for a long time, and you know I hope we get to talk about my new favorite member of the squad, Cory Bush, and her attempt to basically expel members of Congress, um, which is which is her response to this whole insurrection.
0: Right. Okay. So let's 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 take on some uh, let's take on some topics here, um, uh, and try to sort of uh, sort sort through sort through some some things and sort of short bore, okay? Um, what does it, how much, Abe, do you think that the madness of the last seven months, how much is this connected to COVID and the lockdowns?
2: Um, I think a lot more so than... Um we generally recognize um and in ways that that are connected to everything that we're talking about uh social media for example i think when you have people um who are stuck in their homes uh unable in that uh, many of them unable to work unable to socialize to see family uh social media becomes takes on a much greater importance, becomes a, uh, um, a, a sort of stand-in community and family um, and tribe. And um, that was clearly exacerbated over this period of time. Also, um, I think you have a case of increasing paranoia uh, and um, um, conspiratorial thinking because you are... Literally being um, uh, uh, kept from your your life and loved ones and family by officials. and uh, the, so the resentment of government and of institutions and the distrust uh, builds, especially as you you see questionable results to, for the lockdowns. Um, so I think it the virus hit at a time when we were already trending toward this kind of thinking in the country, toward conspiratorial thinking, toward, um, uh, extreme tribalism, um, uh, toward, uh, social media hysteria. And it exacerbated all of them on across the board, uh, left and right. So I think, I think it's a huge, huge
0: player in this. Right. Okay. So, um, I'm trying to remember whether I mentioned this on on Friday show or whether it was on one of the ninety two thousand other podcasts I do every day. So excuse me if I'm repeating myself, but I, I noticed in in um in email in emails that group emails chains that I'm on that people put me on whom I don't know, um people on the right that or things people say on my own Facebook page and stuff like that that it becomes very clear that in the aftermath of the election, Uh, there are people uh, in the world who literally don't know anybody who doesn't think the election was stolen. And so if you say, well, the election wasn't stolen, they say, what are you crazy? Everybody knows the election was stolen. Everybody knows that Dominion did this. Everybody knows that in the Fulton County arena, there was a flood so that people could destroy 50,000 ballots. Everybody knows this. And they think everybody knows this because everybody they know knows this, and because when we say everybody knows this, you're talking about people who's, even in places where, you know, it wasn't like New York City, or, you know, where everybody is literally in their apartments unable to go out, or fearful of going out, that everybody's social circles have been radically circumscribed over the last 10 months. And so they do shrink to family and to people who are online, and... The ordinary, go, you know, sort of life of people, even in, you know, the deepest red states is they go to work, they see people, they know people who don't have the political views they have. They, you know, they socialize with people. They're a church with people who may have differing political views this that the other thing you know that 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 um their their sense of the world is much more unconsciously much more flavored with ambiguity than social media allows your life to be flavored right social media is about you know pouring on the garlic uh without any other spice or something like that and so that's why i think that uh, that the lockdowns are 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 a crucial element of this specific story. I'm not a fan of Spike Lee's "Do the Right Thing," a movie that I think uh, is is dishonest in many ways. But he did do one interesting narrative thing in that movie, which is that the movie, which is about growing racial tensions on a block in Bedford Stuyvesant in one day in 1989 or something like that. It is very important that it's really really, really, really hot, and that people's nerves are fraying because there's a heat wave and 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 they can't get cool, and so their nerve endings are jangled and they're and they're feeling very belligerent and and all of that it's like in crime and punishment, I think we even talked about this in some way that you know Raskolnikov doesn't just kill the landlady and her daughter because of his theories, he's got a fever. He's really sick. And so his, uh, part of his moral capacity is being, you know, it's not just enough to have a bad idea. Some other things have to happen for that bad idea to be made flesh. And that is what the lockdowns are or were. Well,
1: those little moments, it's not just not being able to go to church or go to your job and come into contact with a regular community of people who might have different views who you already know. It's even in those moments, I, I mean, I've lived in DC as a conservative for 25 years, and the best thing for people like me is jury duty, because then you're like thrown into this tiny room for, in some cases, weeks at a time with people from all over the city, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of political views, and you've got to figure out something about the law. And it's fascinating. I love it. I actually love jury duty for that reason. Reason, but there're little moments like that for everyone standing in line at the grocery store standing in line at the DMV all kinds of little daily human moments where we have to tolerate each other and instead because of a pandemic justifiably so we all came to be suspicious of each other and 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 fearful of each other in a way that social media has always profited from even before a pandemic and which I think I think Abe and John you're right like the, there is something in the air that is uh, that was was Predictable for conflagration. We saw
0: it this summer and we certainly saw it last week. Okay, let's pull back from the immediate 2020 horror that, you know, uh, lockdowns and COVID and talk about a broader and much more general thing that both Abe and Christine, all, all of us actually, but Abe and Christine have been sort of trying to tease this out in private conversations, which is the nature of of social media's effect on mass psychology, uh, I would say, something like that. That um, I, let me just go back. So I wrote several things at the end of the 2000s when people were first talking about the horrors of Facebook in which I said, it seemed to me that Facebook was actually pretty benign, that It was a way for people to find people that they went to high school with and say hi. Uh, As a professional matter, both Twitter and Facebook were very useful to me when I took over commentary because it provided me with a pretty easy way to find people whom I didn't know and email them or contact them to say, would you like to write for me? Or I really liked your novel. Would you like to submit a short story to me or something like that? It was a kind of international, national bulletin board, you know, uh, reach out system. And that I thought that it was nice and it was nice for people who, and, and then also for like socially awkward, inept people for whom social, inter, face-to-face social interactions are really hard, that it provided them with a kind of community they could never have had before. And maybe that was just meliorist and naive of me because I don't, I think now, this is where I want to get to your your idea that there is a way in which social media fosters and sponsors uh unreality uh that is that is uh very frightening so uh christine why don't you why don't you start
1: well we just we've been thinking through um i think I, I would argue we've actually left the fake news era right we left the fake news era behind because a lot of the early concerns about social media were in part about disinformation and, and, you know, sort of people reading things thinking they were true. Uh, and there was there was a kind of nice, uh, I believe, naive uh, response to that, which is, well, we'll just train people to understand what's uh, logical and what's, you know, real news, what's fake news. Trump weaponized the fake news. But what what's what we're in now is a new era. And that's where and this is where when we were trying to think through what happened on Wednesday, people were saying, how could those people be dressed up like Vikings in animal pelts in the middle of the Senate? What is going on here? I think they were actually living their unreality. They are so deeply enmeshed in some of the worlds that they inhabit, which are entirely virtual. That it's not, it's gone beyond cosplay. I mean, and LARPing, it's, they are literally doing something unreal. And, and I think while they were in the act of committing felonies, they, many of them probably didn't realize that it was as serious as it was. Some of them were obviously there with violent intent and wanted to murder and maim and and did so. But there was the comic element of it was actually deeply disturbing to me because those people are living their lives in an unreal, sort of with an unreal worldview that. Okay, so if you're Hannah Arendt, you'd say, you know, totalitarianism actually tends to thrive when people are deeply isolated and lonely. And that's certainly what it, what a good portion of our population right now feels. So I wonder how, I wonder what stage we're into now and how social media aids and abets that. And I say all this, you know, I, you, you all know, I have no fan of social media, never have been, but banning, you know, these kind of draconian bans are not going to solve this larger problem.
2: Abe? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I I, I think it's um, it's people use it's not just social media, but the the uh, their sort of online lives now generally um, provide a kind of uh, it's virtual reality without necessarily VR technology. It's you know they they there a world is created for them that they especially that in combination with the lockdowns that. That doesn't need interrupting. By reality, does not need to intrude on this world, um, and that's why you see bad ideas get incubated, spread, re- mutually reinforced, and then um, sort of launched onto out into our world.
0: Um, in pop culture terms, uh, when you see people wearing. Uh, beaver pelts or whatever, painting their faces blue and all that. You, there are media analogs uh, to this and cognates to this, right? There's there's the show Vikings. There's Braveheart. I mean, when people paint their faces blue, they're looking like Mel Gibson in Braveheart. What are these shows? What is, what is the popular culture narrative, particularly in conspiracy movies? What is it that it posits? It posits that there is a small band of people or The Matrix, or something like that. Small band of people who see the truth and go up against all odds, against a giant force that they have no reason to believe they can possibly overcome, but that morality, honor, dignity, and truth require them to stage this, you know... um, Thankless last stand, but in the end, they always win. In pop culture, they always win, right? I mean, in in it, it really when when these things have to hew to an actual historical narrative, and the best example of this is the plot of Les Misérables, which is about you know, which concludes with. Um, the uh, an uprising in 1832 that really happened in Paris that was put down in an, in 12 hours. So these br- well, merry band of revolutionaries, it was so wonderful that they you know that they shut down a neighborhood and tried to take over Paris. And then, of course, in fact, in historical reality, they were they were slaughtered. And so Victor Hugo couldn't portray this as some great victory for them because history. Intruded. And then you have the Braveheart example, which is you win by losing. Like William Wallace is is in the movie at the end of the movie is disemboweled. <laughs> right? He is disemboweled, though you don't get to hear him screaming in horror as he is disemboweled. He sees his beautiful wife walking through his dead wife walking through the crowd to welcome him to heaven. It's a happy ending. It's a happy ending for him. Well, so
1: yeah. I was just going to say, but this is why, so a lot of people have been uh, saying, and I think not incorrectly, that the, the sort of siege of the Michigan Statehouse was a kind of precursor to Wednesday. But another precursor was the Pizzagate guy, the guy who came to uh, Comet Pizza here in D.C. and uh, near my favorite bookstore and, uh, you know, thought, but he, he came thinking he was going to stop a ring of pedophiles from abusing children he and he was willing because as his gun showed he was willing to kill to protect those children he he is also part of this precursor to Wednesday right. because not everybody who comes with violent weapons and and ill intent thinks they are the problem they think they're actually the savior and that's where i that's where the living your unreality is is got to be considered here
0: well i mean you know so i think my point is that this has always been a thing right i mentioned you know uh Braveheart um you know uh, 10 years before Braveheart there was Bernard Goetz so Bernard Goetz is a is a fantastic example of somebody who got on a train carrying a gun somebody who had been bullied and tormented on his block by by had been mugged and this and that and the other thing and he basically was spoiling for trouble and somebody you know the this mob of kids comes into the car and starts harassing people and he shoots them he shoots a couple of them And then the key to understand – the reason I'm telling the story is that afterwards, he then starts behaving like a superhero. He goes around the car. He makes sure everybody's okay. He gives people tissues. He, like – he comforts those who were terrified and all this because uh was living through a fantasy of his – of, you know, the Death Wish fantasy – of saving himself and the city from evildoers. Now, the interesting problem there is he kind of was, you see, that his narrative wasn't false, but the narrative on Wednesday was false. The election wasn't stolen, and if it had been stolen, there were modalities and systems by which that election's theft were supposed to be dealt with, that were are engaged with, right? The courts, the this, the that, and the other thing. And Trump lost and lost and lost and lost and lost and lost. And then the idea was these guys are going to somehow storm the Capitol to reverse, to ensure that Trump was elected, that we're reelected. I mean, that's the difference here. And so it doesn't take social media... To create Bernard Getz existed before social media. Madame Bovary, written in you know, eighteen fifty, is a is a novel about a woman who engages in a ruinous affair and destroys her life because she loves novels and she's bored and she wants to live inside a novel. It's a novel about what happens when cultural you know um, images uh, distort your sense of reality and make you feel like your lot in life stinks and there's something better. So this is what's different here to get back to the other, is social media. So Noah, that's where it's different, right? Because that's a way of rallying people together. That's what's new. It's not Bernard Goetz alone on a train. It would be 200 Bernard Goetzes getting on trains at the same time and then shooting people on the train because they had been directed to do so by the mayor of New York City or something.
3: Yeah, it's still important to apply some perspective here that the, the truly violent are small in number. They have just used these tools to gather in in particularly menacing numbers, but in absolute terms, they're still a very small minority. I don't think you can divorce what we saw over the last 12 months from the COVID, the pandemic, or the lockdowns for the reasons that Abe talked about. And it's a deeply human impulse that in times of crisis, the, the human tribal instinct not only kicks in, but an instinct to to contract those tribes to make them smaller and more easily policed um, becomes much more active. And that's essentially what we've seen is the expurgation of dissenting viewpoints within these smaller tribes, and in combination with the fact that the only thing you can do now to engage in some sort of a human interaction is to have some sort of a political cause that allows you to gather in in mass numbers. those three factors combined to produce the kind of violence that, we, that we've that we seen here. And social media has created, as you say, this kind of unreality, but it's also an, a means of agency. It's a way for you to to have some sort of control over the direction of your life or to demonstrate that you are an entity that won't be ignored and to affect even illusory, um, but nevertheless, valuable to you, um, change and control over your environment. Um, all those factors combine to create the conditions that we're dealing with now.
0: Okay. So we, so we have a new phenomenon though, because the story of political violence in America in the, I mean, we're terrible political violence in the 1960s in various ways, but the, the story of political violence aimed at politicians in America has been arguably, the lone wolf, crazy person, you know, uh Oswald, uh Arthur Bremer who shot George Wallace, John Hinckley who shot Reagan, the guy who shot up the the crazy person who shot up the uh, who shot uh Gabrielle Gifford's uh the guy who shot up the uh, the the congressional softball game so what's new here again is is the marshalling of Let's say it's 50 violent people. Let's. The question, of course, that's, that now faces law enforcement is, there was this crew of people dressed in paramilitary garb who marched through the crowd up to the barricade and broke down the barricade and went for the door and breached the door, and they were the ones who did it, and it was organized, and it was systematic, and it was premeditated. It wasn't just the mob crashing through. These guys lit the fuse they were the fuse and they you know they were they laid the you know they laid the explosive down and they lit the fuse and the fuse you know right and then everybody uh marshaled too so there were like say 15 of them but there wasn't one of them which again gets to why the parlor twitter shutdown stuff it's important to remember there's a there's a justification for it even though we're worried about it which is What if there are another 15 people, but they decide to do it in Albany or in Springfield, Illinois, or in, you know, I mean, we saw people trying to do it sort of in Seattle and Portland on the left, but they were wildly disorganized. Um, Michigan. Well, Michigan, they were also kind of dis, I mean, they sort of got in and then they didn't know what to do. They were just sort of standing there like being, the whole point was to say, we can do this if we want to, but, I mean, not according to the indictment. According to the indictment, the point was to kidnap the governor. Oh, right. But I'm just saying once they walked into the rotunda, they didn't know what to do with themselves. Like they didn't know where the governor was or something like that. I'm just saying that, right, so if you use Michigan as an example, so, you know, we've now seen what happens when you can get a crowd and then you have like 20 people in the crowd who have malicious intent and murder in their hearts and then the crowd is almost like a... It's not a diversion, um, but it's a, it's a, it, I don't know what you would call it. It's a kind of accelerant or something or other, but it's, it, that wasn't the purpose. And so this is sort of like after 9 like, how do you find a needle in a haystack? How do you find 19 people on the planet earth who are going to get together and, you know, and, and fly planes into buildings and try to blow up the Capitol? Like, how do you do that? I, we don't, you, you can't. Find 19 people. All you can do is raise the cost of being one of those people to a very uncomfortable level so that they won't even think of doing it in the first place.
3: And this is sort of the wages of the Republican Party sacrificing its attachment to conservatism because conservatism is, if anyone understands the movement, has read the literature over the last 300 years. You stay away from crowds. You're, you're really kind of scared of crowds because crowds are capable of astonishing violence. It's not as though that we haven't seen... There's, a, there's a, a lot of research about how mobs form and how mobs behave and what leads them towards those kind of activities, how they have to continually grow and expand and be directed, and what leads them to dissipate. I think probably Elias Kennedy did the, the most seminal work on this, but he's not alone. Um, but if you're if you're even marginally familiar with, much less attached to a Burkean philosophy, um, you would have a, a a sort of instinctual loathing and mistrust of large groups of politically active people because it doesn't take much to transform that group, whatever its intentions, into this reptilian-brained thing that all has. To, all you have to do is direct it at the proper target and it will dismember it.
0: Well this is the central point of what the founding documents of conservatism which is Edmund Burke's you know um reflections on the on the revolution in France so Burke supported the American revolution because it was a it was an or, it was a revolution about order uh that 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 the that the uh, uh tyrannical imposition of um of policies from England on on this, on the United States with no representation was unjust, but that France—it was not about dismantling existing institutions, right. but ratifying the legality of their existence. right. And France, and what was going, what, what France was uh, mob, was you know a mob disaster, and even and 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 uh, and, and a nightmare. And you know uh, there, there was a fight between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson on this very point, which the Jefferson was very jazzed by the french revolution and alexander hamilton said the french revolution is a moral and spiritual disaster because it is a surrender to the and that is exactly what we are not that is exactly what our revolution is not so we're going back now to the very origins of the republic and you know i mean not to really get ridiculous with these analogies but you know uh there were rebellions in the first 20 years of America's existence. Daniel Shays' rebellion in Massachusetts being the most famous where, you know, the rules had not been set yet. And there was this like, okay, we need to raise some money to pay for, uh, to pay for the, the revolutionary war that we fought for eight years in order to separate ourselves. And people were like, I don't want to pay, you know, who are you? You don't get to take my money from me. You know, I mean, Like and and so this notion that people you know have uh, social responsibility as well as freedom, uh, that's a fight that's been going on forever, and it's the same fight that the mob goes went through in the summer. But uh, which is like you don't burn buildings if what you're trying to say is that it was terrible that a cop put his knee on a guy's throat and the guy died. Like you you are. To to become a marauding illegal mob uh, in response to something you consider an illegal action is not is a you know is a sort of evil hijacking of something that you thought was evil not not a response to it that is intended to make change things for the better. One difference
2: b- between the mob from uh, at the Capitol and the mob over the summer, though is that um, the mob at the Capitol, they think or they thought that they are saving the republic in a sense, right? They, 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 they believe that um, there is something good at the base. And this is, believe me, this is not a defense of them at all. But they believe that there is a something good at the base of the founding ideals of this country that has been already ruined and destroyed um, because of an un- this un- as this un- supposedly unjust election shows, so they are sort of correcting that, right? They, as as uh, one the one guy captured on, on Fox was saying, uh, "This is the people's house," so he, they, he thinks that he's restoring that sense um, of uh, of uh, government uh, by of and for the people, um, whereas the the mob over the summer. Was all about how, from its very inception, America was um, garbage and and a lie.
1: Well, and that's that. That is exactly the kind of debate that happened uh, with regard to slavery in this country, right? And the the power and the lure of having a written constitution is that this is what we've been arguing out since we put it pen to paper, quill to paper. <laughs> and that's that. You know, the moral clarity of the argument against slavery is one thing, but the radical abolitionists said. It's written, everything was corrupt from the moment they put those words on that manuscript. It was corrupt because of slavery, which is basically the argument of Hannah Nicole Jones, or Nicole Hannah Jones' 1619 project. And then there were the Lincolns of the world who said, This document is what gives us the power to undo that immoral act, and here's how we will do that. Um, one was much more pragmatic, and if you're a zealot, it was considered uh, morally compromised. But mm-hmm. we do know how that worked out, um, which actually gets us to <laughs> Cory Bush at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last people to be expelled from uh, Congress were these were secessionist members of Congress during the Civil War. I mean we've had some you know certainly a lot of censure and whatnot. But what we're seeing now on the left side of the aisle isn't it is 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 a pretty morally zealous effort to purge our government of anyone who's seen to be sympathetic to this radical mob. And that's worth keeping an eye on, I think. <laughs> Whether that comes from the right or the left, the impulse has always been there, but how we handle that impulse right now is going to be
3: important.
0: Well, we should talk about who Cory Bush is, that she should be <laughs> a person who is, that. I mean, the irony that she is the person who is staging this assault uh, when she was a riot leader.
1: Yes. And, and boasted on social media frequently about being a, a leader of the Ferguson, Missouri, uh, Black Lives Matter, rioting uh, uh, for years, and she had her pl- entire political career is as a radical activist who is now bringing that radical activism to Congress. That's what she was elected to do, and and she's proudly embracing that message. So my question going forward, and social media has amplified her message uh, tenfold. I mean, there's no way a politician like her would have the reach she does in the same way that AOC and others have um, without social media. So they are reliant on these same platforms that they're now criticizing for indulging the radicalism of the right on. So that's, you know. Right.
3: And invoking these 14th amendment yes. Uh, yes. provisions is, is, is shrinking the tribe again. What do you mean? And it's purely designed. It's, it's an effort well, to impose a period. Well, you should explain what reason. that
0: is. Cause you're, you're, you, you haven't. Okay. The, well, what she
3: wants to do is, and what's gaining some steam actually in the democratic caucus is to invoke um a uh, contingency within the 14th Amendment that was post-Civil War that was uh, allowed Congress to expel members that had been supportive of the rebellion. Um, And it requires two-thirds vote, but that's so it's never going to happen. But the reason why she's invoking it isn't because it's going to happen. It's to impose a purity test on her members to suggest, well, you know, maybe you're, you know, I, you don't, you think this is pretty bad, but you don't think it's as bad as I think it's pretty bad, because I think it's so bad that we have to go to these extraordinary measures that haven't been invoked in 150 years. It's designed to demonstrate her commitment to the cause, her zealotry, and it's not going to get anything done other than accelerate the collective action problem that Republicans have been dealing with since for the last four years and, and are still deal, dealing with now, which is how do we address this without angering Donald Trump supporters Supporters. and Donald Trump's fans.
0: Okay, so we should should move on to that. So, because, uh, you know, we've been having a a kind of highfalutin conversation, but we have a very practical situation here. Um, Some of it is almost ridiculous. When I wrote the piece on Wednesday that said that Trump should be impeached and removed tomorrow, uh, on Thursday, there was a reason for that. I wasn't just being a hysteric. It was, look, if there are only two weeks left until the election, you better like, you're going to have to do it now, right now. Bec- and now we are now moving into the period in which it's now becoming an absurdity. So there is going to apparently probably be some sort of vote on articles of impeachment in the house that will pass. Cause it only has to pass with a majority um, or an article of impeachment or something like that. And then there's this question of what happens then do, do, does a, uh, James Clyburn and a couple of other people suggested that they should vote the article's of impeachment and vote him impeached and then delay transmitting them to the Senate so that Joe Biden can get his agenda through. And then he'll be impeached a hundred days after the inauguration or something like that. And then they can impeach him and then they can vote to make sure that he doesn't ever uh, have the right to run for, for office again or something like that. So of course that's where you're starting to get into transparent absurdities. So, my view is they had to impeach. They sh- they have to impeach and remove him. They're making a huge mistake by not doing it. Republicans as well as 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 Democrats, because the message needs to be delivered now of all times that you cannot store. You cannot have a paramilitary, whoever it is, invading the Capitol to express its political will. And if you are a politician who tries to marshal such forces, and you have to be. Removed from office and you know humiliated and driven from public life at the at the very least, but apparently that's not going to happen. Is what
1: well and it's weird because you know Pelosi who I, I, if there's any clear cut case for let's move swiftly you know all the arguments that were made about the the previous impeachment they're they're much more resonant now and yet she went over the weekend and said well first let's let's try to invoke the 25th amendment which as we discussed last week really wouldn't solve the broader problem which is making sure that Trump can never hold office again, which I think is long-term the most important thing. Um, 25th Amendment wouldn't necessarily bar him from that, and he could stand there and say, actually, I'm not crazy, they're crazy, and we'd be right back where we started. The fact that she's like talking about how this is about whiteness and let's let them do the 25th Amendment. If they don't do the 25th Amendment, then we'll do impeachment. It's, it makes no, it doesn't even make political sense to me, I would think. I would think she'd want to act swiftly. And I'm a pragmatic conservative type who says, let's not rush into anything. But if there's ever a moment where, where swiftness and, and harsh punishment is justified, it's now. I don't understand her well, this reasoning. Is why it has,
3: this is why it has to be a high flown, highfalutin conversation. Because when it becomes about Donald Trump and his presidency, then it gets really kind of silly to pursue these remedies because it's over in a week. Um, but it's it's not about Donald Trump. It shouldn't be about Donald Trump. It should be about the next hundred exactly. years. As we, said, as we said repeatedly, as I said repeatedly, what was once unthinkable is now thinkable. The notion here that you can overrun police and attack the seat of government successfully has been done, which means people will think about it, which means people might try to do it again, not tomorrow, but maybe in five years, 10 years, 20 years, who knows? And the 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 idea that a demagogue can get away with this sort of thing, Donald Trump will never get away with this again. Somebody else might. And so the notion here that you have to restore the unthinkability of this thing which can only be done through legal mechanisms you can't fence in the capital and dig a moat around it and expect that that's going to be sufficient because force will be met with more force Um, it has to be legal and it has to have lasting um, staying power the only way I I see to do that is by a a very forceful reaction from the article one in the Constitution the legislative branch of government but as long as they keep talking about Trump and just making this about Trump or Trump's movement or people who
0: supported Trump or didn't support
3: Trump, all about Trump, who cares about Trump? It's not about Trump. Okay, well, okay. Be.
0: So let's. We have uh, this uh, newly uh, minted uh, member of Congress from uh, Michigan, Peter Major. I believe it's pronounced Major, uh, who uh, who says he was in the you know, he's a a veteran uh, and he says he was in the, you know, he was at the Capitol when everything happened and according to him, at least one person he knows voted to sustain the objections to the Pennsylvania electors. A member of Congress out of fear for himself and his family. Fear of physical violence against himself and his family. Um, this is where this is where everything that is going on here speaks to what I would consider a critical loss of I mean I would call it political courage but that's the wrong thing because expecting people to show courage is itself a kind of defamation of the very impulse of courage which you know is a, is an exceptional thing and you can't expect people to be exceptional political manhood, political uh, I, I don't know political character um, that uh, Kevin McCarthy, the you know uh, the the House Minority Leader supports objections to the electors uh, something that he knows to be false because he's afraid that he'll lose his position and that Steve Scalise, who wants to be the minority leader, is more acceptable to the Trumpian wing. And so therefore he'll, if he does this, they'll take revenge against him. And all we've ever heard over the course of these, of these years about this is so-and-so is doing this because he's afraid. He's afraid of Trump. And they have reason to be afraid of Trump, right? The Bob Corker and Jeff Flake examples are reasons politically to be afraid of Trump, that he He pulled the trigger, he went at their jugulars, and he got them out. He killed them politically. And so if you want to have a successful political life in the Republican Party, you needed to make your peace with Trump. And some sane people, like Paul Ryan, said, I'm getting out of here before things get really haywire. Thanks very much. Like I don't need to be uh, my, you know, this is not worth my my life or you know my my political life or this confrontation between what I know to be true and what I need to do politically to save myself. So um, uh, here we are, and people, after a mob of people looked to come and possibly kill them, respond to the mob that. Look to come and possibly kill them by doing what the mob wanted. That's half of the Republican caucus in the House. The, well, there
1: was. Where you, do we go from here? Well, the, the, but this this all feeds into actually a lot of our highfalutin discussions about things like institutions and the Electoral College. There, Mary Anastasio O'Grady, who writes about Latin America for the Wall Street Journal, had a really interesting uh point over the weekend where she said you know we 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 might be moving towards a more she called a participatory democracy versus you know the kind of uh checks and balances and institutional type of democracy where you don't have direct uh action because the the concern about political consequences if you're a republican you didn't go along with trump were real the concern about consequences from a violent mob is something very different but if but But we have seen on the left and the right more endorsement of mob, the mob consequence over the last year than we have in in a very long time in America's history. And so I think that this this idea that people taking to the streets and, you know, terrorizing their elected officials, uh, which is something we did also see throughout the summer, uh, that that will get you the results that the system has not so far provided you. That's a dangerous idea, and that's where I think political leaders need to stand up and say, that is not how our system works, and impeachment is one of the only
0: ways to say that. But they're not going to. I know, exactly. So that's my point, which is – this gets to what we talked about last week, which is we've said it's really dangerous to do this, and it's really dangerous to do that, and it's really – but we – that was all vague because we didn't know what the danger was. And now we have, we now know what the danger is and was, and we now have preliminary responses to it, which are, I was about to say astonishingly, (laughs) extraordinarily and astonishingly disheartening. If you are somebody who believes in a, you know, in a, in a functioning two party system which is that it turns out that selling your soul for a mess of pottage to a demagogue is pretty easy. We thought it was harder than this, and it turns out that it was pretty goddamn easy that the party that nominated McCain and nominated Romney turned to Trump Maybe because it said, you know what, Rami and McCain both lost and we don't like, we don't, you know, that didn't work in the right way. So we need somebody more aggressive and confrontational. And so somebody aggressive and confrontational takes over the party, but he doesn't just take over the party. He takes over the party's spirit, he takes over the party's soul, he takes over the party and he poisons it. He poisons it. And who's going to, who is going to administer the emetic to make the party vomit up the poison? Because so far as I can see, there are about five people, you know, including this guy, uh, Representative Major, but not just him. You know, there are five or six people, Tom Cotton, who, by the way, was very much aligned with Trump. And of course, Tom Cotton, the guy uh, who's... Very view, very aggressive view of what to do about Black Lives Matter uh, ended up resulting in the revolution at the New York Times that that got the op-ed editor who had the who had the uh, outrageous daring to accept and run a piece that he didn't agree with by sitting center of the United States on how there needed to be an aggressive effort against Black Lives Matter. Tom Cotton has stood up and said, "This is wrong. This is bad." There are about ten people. So who's going to administer the emetic? That's why I am like in a state of near despair. Okay, but in a functioning
1: democracy, which I'm not saying we currently have, the voters do that by punishing the party that's lost its soul to the demagogue, right? That is ideally, it is that, like the the party cannot maintain power in backing this, this uh, demagogue, but that's why I think it's really crucial that he be barred from ever holding office again. That is central because the only way to get past this, to purge this, and to have anything resembling a, you know, conservative-minded Republican party, he cannot continue to be a factor in that.
3: I think it's, I I want to submit briefly that I think I'm, that I don't think this has anything to do with, with party politics, because what voters do is punish the party that loses elections. If the party is a vehicle for the attaining of political power, which is all it is, then a party fails in that charge should suffer as a result. But no one has suffered as a result of the losing, losing these elections. In fact, the people who, who proceeded over it have been in, in, have been, give, have been uh, generated the benefit of uh, the party support. For example, the RNC chair, Runa Romney McDaniel, didn't have any challenge and was ratified in her position even after she oversaw the loss of these chambers of government because it is not about government. It is not about political power. It, this is very much about a, self, a, con, a self-conception, your very identity is bound up in this movement. So it doesn't matter whether you win or lose elections. In fact, if you lose elections, it kind of solidifies your impression that everything is arrayed against you and that you're you know, you're know, beset on all sides. So losing elections actually solidifies Donald Trump's support. It's um it's very cultish. There's yeah, no, no other that, way to describe that, it. That, that's you
2: essentially what I was going to say. The, the, the problem is that um, normally, yes, you think in terms of um, punishing uh, uh, parties um, at... During elections, the nightmare of populism, and particularly of the runaway populism that that we're going through right now, is that not only, as Noah says, you know, does, does a, a loss confirm their their sense of, of righteousness, um, but they don't care about the election because the election is illegitimate, right? So it doesn't end their fight. They're not playing by the rules that normally
0: punish and reward. Well, that's right. So when does a political leader who loses an election after one term retain his support? That is not normal. George uh, H. W. Bush, who ended up revered at the end of his life, was a pariah in his own party for losing the election in ninety two. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter wasn't exactly a pariah in his party, um, uh, because he was so, you know, because he he was so politically correct in their own terms. But effectively, he, you know, whatever force he represented in American politics was extirpated by his by his defeat. Um, and yeah, and Trump bids fair to be stronger. This is the one interesting aspect of what Christine, what you said. He needs to be barred from office so that we can move on. But if Noah's right and Abe is right, then he, we don't move on. He could be strengthened in some bizarre way by not never being able to be a president again. Then he, then he literally leads an irredentist movement the idea being they stole the election from me and then now they have banned me from politics what if 5 million people think that he is the you know he is the 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 pretender he is the rightful possessor of a throne that has been stolen from him and that legal remedies have been taken to make it impossible for him to return to his rightful place on the throne at the resolute desk and so this is going to go on, and the and the violence and stuff will get worse because a lot of people are going to accept this theory, which basically I think means that uh, the institutional rot that has been discussed by us for a long time is, you know, Yuval Levin's major theme in his, um, you know, in his uh, books and writings for us and all that. Um, uh, is much more is much deeper than we realized and we diagnosed it on the left in the yes, this is a revolution Abes yes, this is a revolution article in some of our writings on the great unraveling and how the left has basically um you know uh, gone fully anti institutional in its own way and now basically it, it's it's clear that the right is very much there in some measurable way. and so I just don't know where I mean, where this, there is no center you know i mean we are we are in Yeats's second coming maybe you know um you know the 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 blood dim tide is loosed uh you know the center cannot hold all, you know the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity i i i don't mean to be apocalyptic but i i don't you know I, that's i don't know um uh so that's a pretty dark I don't want to conclude on that. Uh so let's 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 try to think of something uh okay, I got it. I got it. So Noah, you you believe this uh, 14th Amendment play that that you mentioned, you know, a couple minutes ago uh represents uh a form of overreach that is going to mean that Democrats far from being able to take the kind of political advantage that they should be able to take out of this uh the immolation and civil war that the Republican party or the right is about to descend into or if it hasn't already um but that 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 this represents a kind of overreach that is systemic to democratic or leftist political ambitions and that they're going to blow it. Can you, can you explain that?
3: Well, I don't think that it's native to the left at all. Um, we've, seen, we've seen this over the last four years with Republicans, too, probably more earlier than that, but we've seen it with Republicans, too, is that you, you demonstrate, oh, we've definitely seen it with Republicans. In fact, they arguably started it. You demonstrate your, your zealotry, your commitment to the cause by staking out a position that is self-defeating and that anybody who actually wants to advance the cause would reject because it goes so far that it will alienate your potential allies and be procedurally disastrous. But you supported it because you are truly in touch with the sentiments at the grassroots level and their sense of anger and ire and you're their instrument in government. Um, This is essentially the argument that Ted Cruz made. Uh, in 2013 that pr- produced the shutdown of a government in order to defund Obamacare, the sort of stuff that would never ever happen. But what your advocacy for it showed that you were you know the the, the, the most willing to go to the links that were that the moment demanded. the moment does not uh, can't countenance the kind of half measures that produce actual legislation that that are you know the kind of incrementalism. That is this form of government. Um, the time for those kind of measures is past. Now is the time for dramatic action. You know, real um, uh, demonstrations of your uh, of your commitment. Um, and that's what we're seeing on the left now. But we've seen it on the right, and we we see it a lot. Is and it essentially produces a lot of fatalism because what what they promise to deliver, they can't deliver. And so the people who buy into it are always convinced not of the uh, unreasonableness of their champions in government and their position, but of the fact that government itself is flawed and failed and cannot deliver what 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 you need, what, what we need to see happen right now. Um, and that is contributing to the conditions that we see now as a series of unreasonable expectations that are set by members of Congress that cannot be met. And when they're not met, you have a lot of people that really believed in you that have become very disaffected, and radicalize there's two options available to you in that after that condition has you've succumbed to that condition one is you can divorce yourself from the process which frankly seems really attractive to me right now and two you can radicalize and you can resolve to attack the foundations of this completely unjust system that has failed you and everyone else and delivered us into these uh, into this uh, set of um conditions that result in your own persecution because these institutions are arrayed right against you they're fundamentally unjust and flawed and need to be destroyed and so we're seeing both things probably happen and this is a big, again back to Yeats's poem you don't hear from the people who just ditch the system who are so depressed and disaffected that they just get out all you hear are from the people who are still around who are radicalized who which Seems like everybody's radicalized then, right? Which then produces more radicalization and it becomes it, it reaches the point of critical mass.
0: Okay. See, uh, that's a very. I, I mean, that's a that's a fascinating description. I I'm just wondering, like practically politically, whether they're they're going to blow it because if they if their purpose over the next, Yeah, short answer is they're going to no, blow but it. if their purpose over the next six months is to stage a kind of purge, an American purge, they will go too far. and that and And they're very uh, that's all they have this moment there's this moment in in congress right now where
3: people are very very mad at ted cruz and josh hawley um less so of the house side i mean you had two-thirds of the republican conference who supported this sort of thing and for some reason they're they're escaping the kind of censure that they're due but there is real dissatisfaction with these two members and this is precisely how you present yourself as a greater threat to the republican conference than these two members are in their in their Un- unqualified ambition.
0: Yeah, but who cares about the Republican conference? The Republicans are not the majority. Well, they need it.
3: They need it. If you actually want to get something done, you need who? them. Especially if you want to pursue impeachment.
0: Who? Oh, you mean the Democrats? Democrats. Democratic caucus, yes. They need Republican defectors. A lot of them. Look, I, I, who knows? I mean, I, I, I thought like wednesday when i wrote the he needs to be impeached and removed that 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 the that the emotions of the moment were going to carry through all they need they need a third of the republican senators if you if you have all democrats and a third of republican senators to vote to remove that didn't seem like a big haul to me as every day passes and you have the deplatforming of the right and you have this and you have that and have the other thing you know, I don't know. Maybe Trump will say psychotic things in, in Texas tomorrow, and 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 will scare the bejesus out of everybody and make them bethink themselves. But I mean, you know, then there's Mitch McConnell. He is now the Senate Minority Leader because Trump lost the to Georgia seat. We now know, based on some pretty good regression analyses, that 112 thousand Republican voters in Georgia stayed home. Probably as a result of the the elections rigged and there's no point in losing in, in running the election and uh and the margin uh in in one of those races was seventy five thousand votes And the in I guess Warnock won by seventy five thousand votes so or I can't remember which one. Got this is why it. the the Twitter thing is such a is probably going to be such a disaster is is in part because it gives
3: Donald Trump the opportunity to really solidify the this cult aspect of his following and say listen because. They perceive themselves to be th- of the same caliber in society, of the same sort of um, mistrusted and persecuted faction of society that he is. So when something happens to him, it happens to them, and so he gets to say, "They didn't deplatform me; they deplatform right. you." I'm they're coming after me because this is, there's a famous meme online that has been circulating for the last several years. That is, you know, they're, they're doing all this to me, but they're only doing it to me because I'm in the way. Right. They want to do this to you. And a lot of people really do believe that really do think that. And this, this was the opportunity. This will be the opportunity to say, look, they're, they're going after you.
0: Look, I think I'm just, by the way, if I were Trump, uh, I would uh, start a substack. I mean, don't call it a substack. Do it something else. You literally have a site that's called Trumper, and it's just you, and people have to pay $5 a month, and you just throw your tweets on the site. And if 2 million people join, he makes $10 million a month. That's $120 million a year. And if 4 million people join, that's $240 million a year. I mean, that doesn't seem to me to be irrational or unreasonable as an expectation whatsoever. He doesn't need a TV cable channel. He doesn't need this. He doesn't need that. He can make a quarter of a million, a quarter of a billion dollars a year by starting his own his own site. And if he doesn't do it, it will be because he wants the martyrology, right? I mean, because he he could he could use that, but that you know that would be my business advice Hmm. to him. Since he's going to have a lot of legal bills to pay beginning on January twenty first, because if you think that the Manhattan District Attorney isn't going to indict him, you're crazy. That are after this, they would indict him for picking his feet in Poughkeepsie. You know that that's they 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 whatever they're doing, they're they're going to go at his jugular and do whatever they can. He can pardon himself till the cows come home. And there will be local prosecutions of him, not only here, but in Florida and in Illinois, where he has a hotel and wherever they can find him. Um, and that will also add to the martyrology, but it will also make his life a misery. Um, And for some of us right now, his life being a misery would be a delight because what he has done to this country in the last week uh, is unconscionable. And I, I would just say, by the way, that we get to this, Let's get to this final question, and then we will let our our poor suffering listeners who are you know who have been like subjected to a Castro length show here. Uh, we'll let them go. Um, the people like us who are saying this is terrible and all this, but we're, we are not. Despite our critics on the right saying this. We are not Never Trumpers. Like I never accepted the name Never Trump. I don't believe I believed in accepting the reality that he was president and that he was the leader of the Republican Party and seeing what would happen from there. Does this what happened here? Does this retroactively justify um, uh, Bill Kristol's evolution, uh, David Frum's evolution, the Bulwark? Uh, I, I'm not even going to go to the Lincoln Project. The Lincoln Project is a for profit. Uh, enterprise that has now made tens of millions of dollars a year raising money that is enriching everybody who works for it. So I'm not talking about them, but the intellectual anti-Trump Never Trump movement, were they right all along? Or is that was that a version of pre-crime? Like they're just saying, I told you he was a bad egg. I told you he was a bad seed and now it's all come to roost. And if we had just killed him before, then if we had destroyed him before, then he wouldn't have had this happen now. Abe? Um
2: History I think, will, uh, I think, be very kind to the never-Trumpers because um, it will view these years um, in such a way that what they were right about will far overshadow what they were wrong about. Uh, But to my mind, they were still, and they were right about his being a unique danger to the Republic. What they were wrong about, and I think are still wrong about um, was the idea that because he was so bad and offensive, you must not recognize any positive thing that happens as being positive, which also then requires some sort of ideological contortion uh, on your part to not recognize good things.
3: I'll say what they were wrong about. It's quite obvious that if you take the president in terms of his capacity to mobilize a violent mob, the first expressions of violence in his name occurred in March of 2016. It was obvious then where this was going, and a lot of us said it. I said it repeatedly. Um, But it's not just what they're wrong about is they can't recognize his accomplishments. What they're wrong about is that the only instrument available to any of us to identify, isolate, and stigmatize Trumpism as a force for violence is the Republican Party. There's no other institution that can anathematize this sort of thing. They keep fooling themselves into believing that you can destroy this party and build it from the ground up. It's not going to happen. And the two-party dynamic is an organic thing. It's not something that anybody decreed into existence, and it's perpetuated itself organically. So the notion here that you can somehow just remove this, this political party from existence is fatuous and silly. And also it's, it's your only opportunity to seek and achieve salvation. So to go to war with that institution, no matter how hurt your feelings are about its betrayals
2: is self-defeating.
3: And and, just along
2: with that, also there there was the never Trump idea that any um, good person um, should not be in the administration, should, should have distanced himself from, from Trump the, uh, for the entire time. Um, I think that would, would have been um, very bad advice because, uh, as we've said many times, uh, many of the positive things that have happened over the past four years have been a result of there being good non-Trumpers in the administration.
1: Well, and then the never Trumpers are absolutely right about the dangers that they foresaw early on about Trump. What I have what I continue not to like about that, the, the way that a lot of the argument has been framed is that it's the mirror image of the criticism of the cult of personality, right? Everything becomes about Trump. And nothing cannot be about Trump, and that narrows rather than broadens our political uh, room for political debate and discussion. And it makes everything a cult of personality on the other side. And that—that's where I think Abe, you're right to point to the fact that that meant that, that the loyalty and litmus testing that went on on uh, during this administration was was not good for conservatives in general, even if the warnings and the the dangers that were highlighted was a was a service that they performed.
0: I I will I will say this that in all of life uh there are costs and benefits and 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 the good and the bad and if you come to say that the Trump administration was 70% awful and that 69% of the 70% that was awful is really the result of what happened between November 3rd and now culminating in the culminating in the the riot uh on, uh, last Wednesday. That doesn't mean that there wasn't 30% that was good. That's still a terrible balance, right? 70-30. Uh, but this notion that everything in the 30 was invalidated by the horror in the 70 is a simply is a misreading of of of, of reality and the way the world works. Um I will continue to say that I believe that any Republican president would have done an overwhelming majority of the good things that Trump did, which is why it was unnecessary for Trump to be elected president, to be, to, to win in 2016 and be elected president, uh, as he was because another a generic Republican would have done almost all everything else. I think there are two things you can say about him that happened that would not have happened otherwise. One of which is I don't believe that another president would have stood by Brett Kavanaugh. I think that Brett Kavanaugh would have been offloaded. Now, by the way, if Brett Kavanaugh had been offloaded, which would have been an incredible injustice in my view, he still would have been replaced by another conservative judge. And it's not like Kavanaugh, you know, is is you know the the, the Solon is the second coming of you know diogenes i mean you know he's a pretty generic conservative justice and there would be another one right so that that's that that's number one and the second is uh the 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 uh very uh seemingly risky policy toward israel in the middle east it's very hard to see how um another uh, a, a, a figure who was not an anti-institutionalist would have been able to at least would have empowered people to go down the route that uh Jared Kushner and and Avi Berkowitz and uh David Friedman and others went down Mike Pompeo went down uh to do this and um that's like you know that's that's very big but it does not merit the danger it does not justify the danger that uh he really has posed to the republic but you can't you can say both and to be unable and unwilling and uh, to say both is to is to is to indulge in a kind of uh moral preening that is i think unattractive um you know it's not like uh, nixon was uh resigned from office rather than being impeached and removed I don't see liberals saying that they're upset that the Environmental Protection Agency exists. You know, they didn't say, you know what, Nixon is so disgusting that we have to eliminate the Environmental Protection Agency because they like it. So fine, you know they, they you know, um, you know they, they we haven't gone back on the gold standard. Uh, or, you know, or, you know, we you have, know, we haven't we haven't we uh, haven't we haven't gone back before Bretton Woods, you know, uh, because Nixon was what was involved in that, and nor has anyone made any such demand, ok. so this is by far the longest podcast we've ever done. Uh, I thought we were, yeah, you know, I, I was aiming for Joe Rogan length, but I think we've probably you know, we've we've really we've eaten up your time enough if any of you are still listening. Thank you. If you're still listening, we'll be back tomorrow with a more reasonable podcast for Abe, No, and Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.